Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Tonight on Drama on One, we continue our celebration of the Ulysses centenary, focusing on selected episodes from Joyce's masterpiece with introductions by playwright Michael West. The RTE Players 1982 recording, directed by William Stiles, was recently described by John Phipps in The Spectator as a masterpiece, a rare, enduring example of radio drama as art. Before we hear the RTE players performing Ulysses, here is Michael West, and this week his focus is on the Cyclops episode. Hello, my name is Michael West, and it's my privilege and pleasure to introduce this excerpt of the Cyclops episode from the great 1982 recording of Ulysses, the entirety of which you can access via the RTE website, and which you are warmly invited to run to at any moment. In fact, what you should do right now is stop listening to me, look for RT Ulysses readings in podcast form and pick a chapter. It's fantastic and you won't regret it. But if you're still here, for a moment I'm going to talk a little bit about Joyce's stylistic development and innovation in Ulysses. As a precocious reader, Joyce started off writing pieces that were torn between sincere imitation and parody. And that tension is a pretty useful way to see his artistic journey from the poems of chamber music and the early stories of Dubliners through Portrait and Ulysses to the derangement of Finnegan's Wake. As his mastery of the form, any form, increased, so did the temptation to send it up. One is reminded of Beckett's line that the more Joyce did, the more he could, and that very facility forced him back to asking what is the point in recording these marks on paper in the first place. Once you see this pattern, it makes sense of his obsessive experimentation and the extraordinary scale of his achievement, because each time Joyce sets out to write beautifully, his instinct for chaos and satire and deflection pushes it into something comic and grotesque. But when he sets out to parody something, those same gifts push his writing into a heightened place of significance and beauty and order. We can see it in the early story Araby, where a young boy's infatuation with a girl and his own romantic fantasies meet a crushing fate, but where the pain of the moment simultaneously dignifies the boy's ridiculous lofty hopes by the sheer grandeur of their dashing. And we see it too in the great climax of Dubliners, The Dead, which parodies ideas of eulogy and encomium, which mocks spurious fantasies of an Irish awakening, of a romantic vision of the rural West, and yet which ends with a sustained riff that embodies just those things in a couple of pages that bring otherwise sane people to quivering tears. I think it's the most endearing thing about Joyce that a writer not known for modesty or paying his rent can't help but supply his energy and brilliance to whatever he turns his attention to, and that even if his original intention was to belittle and mock, the simple fact of his sustained focus creates something worth our time. Joyce started out small, which sounds almost blasphemous to say out loud. (laughs) But Joyce's first big idea, his epiphany as it were, was to crystallise the briefest flashes of insight, poetic snapshots, the moment, as he put it, in which the soul of the commonest object seems to us radiant. He wanted to present these luminous details and frozen moments as capturing the essence of a thing in its shining pure whatness, samples of reality that glittered with the stardust of transcendence. These epiphanies, as he called them, actually predate the stories of Dubliners. They're very much a young writer's game that in humbler hands would be called notes or ideas for a poem or a song. But for a writer of Joyce's ambition and talent, the premise is worth taking seriously, not least because he lived and died by it. And this premise is that there could be a small, concrete moment of reality so powerfully present that it would radiate through the entire history of recorded time. The fact that we know the day of his first official date and sexual encounter with Nora Barnacle is a perfect example of this. And that we celebrate it in any sense is a remarkable tribute to his powers of persuasion and his commitment to build the entire castle of Ulysses around a single moment, a single afternoon in Dublin on June the 16th, 1904 and what Nora Barnacle did to him down by the canal. Which is something to think about when you see people in boaters and coloured blazers or carrying parasols or sausages on Bloomsday. Ulysses itself began life as a short story that was originally to go with the rest of Dubliners. But what started as a type of satire, the very essence of the mock heroic taking the form of the mythic return home of a Greek warrior to laugh at a man's trip to the shops, grew in his hands to become a beautiful meditation on the mythic in the everyday, because why can't a man's trip to the shops not be as important and heroic as anything else? Bloom is a human, 
decent, caring person and a wonderful candidate for a hero. He loves his wife. He misses her. He's kind to her. The intense scrutiny of a single ordinary day for ordinary people becomes something great and elevates them all. But if the original mock heroic intention of following Leopold Bloom as he wandered around Dublin became more heroic and less mocking, there were plenty of other myths to subvert. And the subject of this chapter is one of the most powerful, the myth of nationalism. The chapter is Cyclops. It's around 5pm or so. Barney Kiernan's pub on Little Britain Street, which slightly amazingly is still named Little Britain Street all these years later, even though the pub itself is no more. The street name is a clue, if it were needed, of the twin themes of resentment and subjugation that attend a certain type of discussion of Irish nationalism. Joyce wrote this from exile, remembering the pubs of his youth and particularly the pubs of his father's middle years. Although what place is more evocative of the emigre experience of nationalistic displacement than an Irish-themed pub, whether it's in Budapest or Temple Bar? To hear these actors effortlessly recreate the call and response of a thirsty clientele, busily absorbed by the liturgy of pints and stories, is to re-enter an extraordinary acoustic reconstruction of the sacred Irish alcoholic inner temple. The voices of the men who weave their entire day around the possibility of a pint sound unbelievably familiar. Not only the accents, but the epithets and rhythms of speech ring out from a chat in a public house down the road the other night. For every peculiar and lost word of slang or contemporary cultural reference, there are a dozen turns of phrase that men up and down this island still use to show their keen wit and the brilliance of their conversation, when what they're really doing is passing on the conversational form and content shared by their elders over decades of drinking and talking, and rarely doing anything else. The nationalist revival found its first expression in the cultural sphere, and the sacred book of Ireland was a holy grail and long-term goal of the Celtic twilight. And if no single book was to win the title, then many titles could be seen to add to it, from Yeats's collection of Irish fairy tales, to Lady Gregory's translation of Cúchulán and Mohemna, the mystic poetry of early Yeats, to the plays of the Irish Theatre Society. This misty realm was jealously guarded and praised. Yet the reality of Irish nationalism not lost on Joyce was the gap between privileged houses and their flights of fancy and the impoverished economic life of the citizens of Kiltartan, whose poverty was held up as some innate proof of purity and goodness. This is the dynamic. Joyce playfully explodes. A bunch of alcoholic grifters spouting on about Ireland, intercut with ornate panels of speechifying and self-glorying myth-making of various forms of Irish nationalism. These panels are ridiculously and sometimes tediously overwrought, but they are a testament to Joyce's endlessly fertile gift of mimicry and elaboration. And the sheer abundance and copiousness are both a send-up and part of his own claim to be writing the sacred book of Ireland. It also makes the return to the grizzled drunkards incredibly funny in a way that an uninterrupted hour or two of aimless prejudice and banter wouldn't achieve. Are these guys still here and still spouting on? Bloom himself hardly features in person. Though he's talked about a good deal, he slips in looking for someone, tries to avoid an argument and offers a hopeful note about rising above conflict that threatens to light a powder keg. Force, hatred, history, all that, that's not life for men and women. Insult and hatred, and everybody knows that it's the very opposite of that that is really life. What? says Alf. Love, says Bloom. I mean the opposite of hatred. I must go now, says he to John Wise. And he wisely makes his escape. Michael West discussing Cyclops, episode 12 from James Joyce's Ulysses. And now we'll hear an excerpt from the episode itself as we visit Barney Kiernan's pub in Little Britain Street, with Brendan Caldwell as our unreliable narrator and Peter Dix as the citizen. And just a note that the programme contains some strong language along the way. I was just passing the time of day with old Troy of the DMP at the corner of Arbor Hill there, and be damned, but a bloody sweep came along, and he near drove his gear into my eye. I turned around to let him have the weight of my tongue, when who should I see dodging along Stony Batter only Joe Hines? Lo, Joe, says I, how are you blowing? Did you see that bloody chimney sweep near shove my eye out with his brush? Such luck, says Joe. Who's the old bollocks you were talking to? Old Troy, says I, was in the force. 
I'm on two minds not to give that fellow in charge for obstructing the thortifier with his brooms and ladders. What are you doing round those parts? Says Joe. Devil a much, says I. There's a bloody big foxy thief beyond by the garrison church at the corner of the chicken lane. Old Troy was just giving me a wrinkle about him. Lifted any god's quantity of tea and sugar to pay three bob a week. Said he had a farm in the county down off a hoppermate home by the name of Moses Herzog over there near Hatesbury Street. Circumcised, says Joe. Aye, says I, a bit off that top. An old plumber named Garrity. I'm hanging under his taw now for the past fortnight and I can't get a penny out of him. That delay you're on now, says Joe. Aye, says I. How are the mighty fallen? Collector of bad and doubtful debts. But that's the most notorious bloody robber you'd meet in a day's walk. And the face on him, all pockmarks, would hold a shower of rain. Tell him, says he, I dare him, says he, and I double dare him to send you round here again, or if he does, says he, I'll have him summonsed up before the court, so will I, for trading without a licence. Are you a strict T.T.? says Joe. Not taking anything between drinks, says I. What about paying our respects to our friend? says Joe. Who, says I? Sure he's in John of God's off his head, poor man. Drinking his own stuff, says Joe. Aye, says I, whiskey and water on the brain. Come around to Barney Cannon, says Joe. I want to see the citizen. Barney Mavurnings be it, says I. Anything strange or wonderful, Joe? Not a word, says Joe. I was up at that meeting in the city arms. What was that, Joe, says I? Cattle traders, says Joe. About the foot and mouth disease. I want to give the citizen the hard word about it. So we went around by the linen hall barracks and the back of the courthouse, talking of one thing or another. Decent fellow, Joe, when he has it. But you like that, he never has it. Jesus, I couldn't get over that bloody foxy garrity, that daylight robber. For trading without a licence, says he. So we turned into Barney Kiernan's. And there, sure enough, was the citizen up in the corner having a great confab with himself and that bloody mangy mongrel Gary Owen and he waiting for what the sky would drop in the way of drink. There he is, says I, in his glory hole with his crew skiing lawn and his load of papers working for the cause. The bloody mongrel let a grouse out of him would give you the creeps be a corporal work of mercy if someone would take the life of that bloody dog. I'm told for the fact he ate a good part of the breeches off a constabulary man in Santry that came round one time with a blue paper about a licence. Stand and deliver, says he. That's all right, citizen, says Joe. Friends here. Pass, friends, says he. Then he rubs his hand in his eye and says he. What's your opinion of the times? Doing the rapparee and Rory of the Hill. But big up, Joe was equal to the occasion. I think the markets are on a rise, says he, sliding his hand down his fork. So big up, the citizen claps his paw on his knee, and he says, Foreign wars is the cause of it. And says Joe, sticking his thumb in his pocket, It's the Russians wish to tyrannise. I give over your bloody cotton, Joe, says I. I would thirst on you, I wouldn't sell for half a crown. Give it a name, citizen, says Joe. Wine of the country, says he. What's yours? Says Joe. Ditto Macanaspe, says I. Three points, Terry. Says Joe. And how's the old heart, citizen? Says he. Never better, Akara. Says he. What, Gaddy? Are we going to win, eh? And with that, he took the bloody old towser by the scruff of the neck, and by Jesus, he near throttled him. So anyhow, Terry brought the three points Joe was standing, and begot the sight nearly left my eyes when I saw him land out a quid. Oh, as true as I'm telling you, a good-looking sovereign. And there's more where that came from, says he. Were you robbing the pure box, Joe, says I. Sweat of my brow, says Joe. Twas the prudent member gave me the wheeze. I saw him before he met you, says I, sloping around by Pill Lane in Greek Street with his Zoe counting up all the goods of the fish. Who comes through Micken's land, bedight in sable armour? O Bloom, the son of Rory, it is he. Impervious to fear as Rory's son, he of the prudent soul. Ah, well, says Joe, handing round the bills. Thanks be to God they had the start of us. 
Drink that, citizen. I will, says he. Honourable person. Health, Joe, says I, and all down the farm. Ah. Oh, don't be talking. I was blue mouldy for the want of that point. Clear to God I could hear it hit the pit of me stomach with a click. And lo, as they quaffed their cup of joy, a godlike messenger came swiftly in, radiant as the eye of heaven, a comely youth. And behind him there passed an elder of noble gait and countenance, bearing the sacred scrolls of law, and with him his lady wife, a dame of peerless lineage, fairest of her race. Little Alf Bergen popped in round the door, and hid behind Barney's snug, squeezed up with the laughing. And who was sitting up there in the corner that I hadn't seen, snoring drunk, blind to the world, only Bob Dorn. I didn't know what was up, and Alf kept making signs out of the door. And begob, what was it only that bloody old pantaloon Dennis Breen in his bath slippers, with two bloody big books tucked under his oxter, and the wife hot foot after him, unfortunate wretched woman trotting like a poodle. I thought Alf would split. Look at him, says he. Breen, he's traipsing all round Dublin with a postcard someone sent him with UP up on it to take a lie. <laughs> and he doubled up. Take a what, says I? Libel action, says he. For £10,000. Oh, hell, says I. The bloody mongrel began to growl that had put the fear of God in you, seeing something was up. But the citizen gave him a kick in the ribs. Peer the host, says he. Who? Says Joe. Breed, says Alf. He was in John Henry Menton's, and then he went round to Collis and Ward's, and then Tom Rochford met him and sent him round to the sub-sheriffs for a lark. Oh, God, I've a pain laughing. You pee up. The long fella gave him an eye as good as a process, and now the bloody old lunatic has gone round to Green Street to look for a G-man. When is Long John going to hang that fella in Mount Joy? Says Joe. Bergen, says Bob Dorden, waking up. Is that Alf Bergen? Yes, says Alf. Hanging. Wait till I show you. Here, Terry, give us a pony. That bloody old fool, £10,000. You should have seen Long John's eye. You pee. <laughs> and he started laughing. Who are you laughing at? <laughs> says Bob Jordan. Is that Bergen? Hurry up, Terry boy. Says Alf. What's that bloody Freemason doing? Says the citizen. Prowling up and down outside. What's that? Says Joe. Here you are. Says Alf, chucking out the rhino. Talking about hanging. I'll show you something you never saw. Hangman's letters. Look at here. So he took a bundle of wisps of letters and envelopes out of his pocket. Are you cotton, says I. Honest, Injun. Says Alf. Read them. So Joe took up the letters. Who are you laughing at, says Bob Jordan. So I saw there was going to be a bit of a dust. Bob's a queer chap when the porter's up on him. So says I, just to make talk. How's Willie Murray those times, Alf? I don't know, says Alf. I saw him just now on Cable Street with Paddy Dignam. Only I was running after that. You what? Says Joe, throwing down the letters. With who? With Dignam. Says Alf. Is it Paddy? Says Joe. Yes. Says Alf. Why? Don't you know he's dead? Says Joe. Paddy Dignam dead? Says Alf. Aye? Says Joe. Sure, I'm after seeing him not five minutes ago. Says Alf. As plain as a pike staff. Who's dead? Says Bob Jordan. You saw his ghost then? Says Joe. Got between us and harm? What? Says Alf. Good Christ, only five... What? And Willie Murray with them. The two of them there near what do you call them's? What? Dignam dead. What about Dignam? Says Bob Jordan. Who's talking about? Dead. Says Alf. He is no more dead than you are. Maybe so. Says Joe. They took the liberty of burying him this morning anyhow. Paddy. Says Alf. Aye. Says Joe. He paid the debt of nature. God be merciful to him. Good Christ. Says Alf. Begob he was what you might call flabbergasted. There he is again, says the citizen, staring out. How, says I? Bloom, says he. He's on point duty up and down there for the last ten minutes. And begob, I saw his fizzog do a peep in and then a slither off again. Little Alf was knocked barways. Faith he was. Good Christ, says he. I could have sworn it was him. And says Bob Jordan, with the hat on the back of his pole, Lowest blackguard in Dublin when he's under the influence. Who said Christ is good? I beg your parsnips, says Alf. 
Is that a good Christ? Says Bob Jordan. To take away poor little Willie Dignam? Ah, well. Says Alf, trying to pass it off. He's over all his troubles. But Bob Jordan shouts out of him. He's a bloody ruffian, I say. To take away poor little Willie Dignam. Terry came down and tipped him the wink to keep quiet that they didn't want that kind of talk on a respectable licensed premises. And Bob Jordan starts doing the weeps about Paddy Dignam. True as you're there. The finest man, says he, snivelling. The finest, purest character. The tear is bloody near your eye, talking through his bloody hat. Fetter for him to go home to the little sleepwalking bitch he married. Mooney, the bum bailiff's daughter. Mother kept a kip in Hardwick Street. The gist was vegan about the landings. Bantam Lyons told me that I was stopping there at two in the morning without a stitch in her, exposing her person open to all comers, fair field and no favour. The noblest, the truest, says he. And he's gone. Poor little Willie. Poor little Patty Jingham. And mournful and with her heavy heart, he bewept the extinction of that beam of heaven. Old Gary Owen started growling again at Bloom that was skeezing round the door. Come in, come on, he won't eat you, says the citizen. So Bloom slopes in with his cod's eye on the dog and he asks Terry, was Martin Cunningham there? Oh, Christ, McHugh, says Joe, reading one of the letters. Listen to this, will you? And he starts reading out one. Seven Hunter Street, Liverpool, to the High Sheriff of Dublin, Dublin. Honoured sir, I beg to offer my services in the above-mentioned painful case. I hanged Joe Gann in Bootle Jail on the 12th of February 1900, and I hanged... Show us, Joe, says I. Private Arthur Chase for foul murder of Jesse Tilsit in Pentonville Prison, and I was assistant when... Jesus, says I. Billington executed the awful murderer, Toad Smith. The citizen made a grab at the letter. Hold on, says Joe. I have a special knack of putting the noose once in he can't get out, hoping to be favoured. I remain honoured, sir. My terms is five guineas. H. Rumbold, Master Barber. And a barbarous bloody barbarian he is, too, says the citizen. And the dirty scrawl at the wretch, says Joe. Here, says he. Take them to hell out of my sight, Alf. Hello, Bloom, says he. What will you have? So they started arguing him about the point. Bloom saying he wouldn't uh, and couldn't and uh, excuse him, no offence and all to that. And then he said, well, he'd just take a cigar. Gob, he's a prudent member and no mistake. Give us one of your prime stinkers, Terry, says Joe. And Alf was telling us there was one chap sent in a mourning card with a black border round it. They're all barbers, says he, from the black country that would hang their own fathers for five quid down on travelling expenses. And he was telling us there's two fellas waiting below to pull his heels down when he gets the drop and choke him properly. And then they chop up the rope after and sell the bits for a few bob a school. In the dark land they bide, the vengeful knights of the razor. Their deadly coil they grasp, yea, and therein they lead to Erebus, whatsoever white hath done a deed of blood. For I will on no wise suffer it, even so saith the Lord. So they started talking about capital punishment. And, of course, Bloom comes out with the why and the wherefore and all the cardology of the business and the old dog smelling him all the time. I'm told those Jewies just have a sort of a queer odour coming off them for dogs about. I don't know what all deterrent effect and so forth and so on. There's one thing it hasn't a deterrent effect on, says Alf. What's that, says Joe? The poor bugger's tool that's been hanged, says Alf. That's so, says Joe. God's truth, says Alf. I heard that from the headwater that was in Kilmainham when they hanged Joe Brady, the Invincible. He told me when they cut him down after the drop, it was standing up in their faces like a poker. Ruling passion strong in death, says Joe. As someone said... That can be explained by science, says Bloom. It's only a natural phenomenon, don't you see? Because on account of the... And then he starts with his jawbreakers about phenomenon and science and this phenomenon and the other phenomenon. The distinguished scientist, Herr Professor Leutpold Blumendoft, tendered medical evidence to the effect that the instantaneous fracture of the cervical vertebrae and consequent scission of the spinal cord would, 
according to the best approved traditions of medical science, be calculated to inevitably produce in the human subject a violent ganglionic stimulus of the nerve centres, causing the pores of the corpora carvanosa to rapidly dilate in such a way as to instantaneously facilitate the flow of blood to that part of the human anatomy known as the penis or male organ, resulting in the phenomenon which has been denominated by the faculty a morbid upwards and outwards philoprogenitive erection in articulo mortis per diminutionum capitis. So, of course, the citizen was only waiting for the wink of the word, and he starts gassing out of him about the invincibles and the old guard and the men of 67 and who fears to speak of 98 and Joe with them about all the fellows that were hanged, drawn and transported for the cause by drumhead court-martial and a New Ireland and knew this, that and the other. Talking about New Ireland, he ought to go and get a new dog, so he ought. Mangy, ravenous, brute, sniffling and sneezing all round the place and scratching his scabs. And round he goes to Bob Doran that was standing alpha half one, sucking up of what he could get. So, of course, Bob Doran starts doing the bloody fool with him. Give us the paw. Give the paw, Chucky. Good old Chucky. Give us the paw here. Give us the paw. Had a bloody end to the paw he'd paw, and Alf trying to keep him from tumbling off the bloody stool atop of the bloody old dog, and he talking all kinds of drivel about training by kindness, and thoroughbred dog, and intelligent dog. Give you the bloody pip. Then he starts scraping a few bits of old biscuit out of the bottom of a Jacob's tin he told Terry to bring. Gob, he galloped it down like old boots, and his tongue hanging out of him a yard long for more. Near ate the tin and all, hungry, bloody mongrel. And the citizen and Bloom having an argument about the point, the brothers Shears, and Wolf Tone beyond on Arbor Hill, and Robert Dammit and Die for Your Country, the Tommy Moore touch about Sarah Cudden and she's far from the land. And Bloom, of course, with his knock-me-down cigar, putting on swank with his lardy face. Phenomenon. The fat heap he married is a nice old phenomenon, with a back on her like a ball alley. Time they were stopping up in the city arms, Pissarburg told me there was an old one there with a cracked luther a man of a nephew, and Bloom trying to get the soft side of her, doing the molly cuddle, playing basic to come in for a bit of the wampum in her will, and not eating meat of a Friday, because the old one was always thumping her craw and taking the lout out for a walk. And one time he led him the rounds of Dublin, and by the holy farmer he never cried crack till you brought him home as drunk as a boiled owl, and he said he did it to teach him the evils of alcohol. And by herrings, if the three women didn't near roast him. It's a queer story. The old one, Bloom's wife, and Mrs. O'Dowd that kept the hotel. Jesus, I had to laugh at Pissarburg, taking them off, chewing the fat, and Bloom with his, but don't you see, and but on the other hand. And sure more be talking, the lout, I'm told, was in powers after the blenders, round in Cope Street, going home footless in a cab five times in the week after drinking his way through all the samples in the bloody establishment. Phenomenon. The memory of the dead, says the citizen, taking up his point glass and glaring at Bloom. Aye, aye, says Joe. You don't grasp my point, says Bloom. What I mean is... Sinn Féin, says the citizen. Sinn Féin awan. The friends we love are by our side, and the foes we hate before us. So then the citizen begins talking about the Irish language and the corporation meeting and all to that, and the Shoneens that can't speak their own language, and Joe chipping in because he's took someone for a quid, and Bloom putting in his old goo with his twopenny stump that he catched off Joe, and talking about the Gaelic League and the Anti-Treating League and drink the course of Ireland. Anti-treating is about the size of it, 
God, he'd let you pour all manner of drink down his throat till the Lord would call him before you'd ever see the froth of his point. And one night I went in with the fellow into one of their musical evenings, song and dance, about she could get up on a truss of hay, she could, my Maureen lay. And there was a fellow with a ballyhooly blue ribbon badge spiffing out of him in Irish, and a lot of Colleen Barnes going about with temperance beverages and selling medals and oranges and lemonade and a few old dry buns. God, fly, who like entertainment? Don't be talking. Ireland sober is Ireland free. And then an old fellow starts blowing into his bagpipes, and all the gougers shuffling their feet to the tune the old cow joyed of, and one or two sky pilots having an eye around that there was no goings on with the females hitting below the belt. So how and ever, as I was saying, the old dog, seeing the tin was empty, starts mousing around by Joe and me. I'd train him by kindness so I would if he was my dog. Give him a rousing fine kick now and again where it wouldn't blind him. Afraid he'll bite you, says the citizen, sneering. No, says I, but he might take my leg for a lamppost. So he calls the old dog over. What's on you, Gary? Says he. Then he starts hauling and mauling and talking to him in Irish. And the old cows are growling, letting on to answer like a duet in the opera. Such growling you never heard as they let off between them. Someone that has nothing better to do was to write a letter pro bono publico to the papers about the muzzling order for the dog the like of that. Growling and grousing and his eye all bloodshot from the drought is in it and the hydrophobia dropping out of his jaws. So he told Terry to bring some water for the dog and gob you could hear him lapping it up a mile off. And Joe asked him, would he have another? I will, says he. Uh, Hannah, to show there's no ill feeling. Gob, he's not as green as his cabbage looking. Assing around from one pub to another, leaving it to your own honour, with old Giltrap's dog and getting fed up by the ratepayers and corporators. Entertainment for man and beast. And says Joe, could you make a hole in another point? Could I swim, duck, says I. Same again, Terry, says Joe. Are you sure you won't have anything in the way of liquid refreshment? Says he. Thank you, no, says Bloom. As a matter of fact, I just wanted to meet Martin Cunningham, don't you see? About this insurance of poor Dignams. Martin asked me to go to the house. You see, he, Dignam, I mean, didn't serve any notice of the assignment on the company at the time and nominally under the act the mortgagee can't recover on the policy. Holy wars, says Joe, laughing. That's a good one if old Shylock is landed. So the wife comes out top dog, what? Well, that's a point, says Bloom. For the wife's admirers. Who's admirers? Says Joe. Uh, the wife's advisers, I mean, says Bloom. Then he starts all confused, mucking it up about the mortgage jar under the act, like the Lord Chancellor giving it out on the bench, and for the benefit of the wife, and that a trust is created. But on the other hand, that Dignam owed Bridgeman the money, and if now the wife or the widow contested the mortgagee's right, till he near had the head of me addled with his mortgage or under the act. He was bloody safe he wasn't running himself under the act that time as a rogue and vagabond, only he had a friend in court. Selling bazaar tickets, or what do you call it, Royal Hungarian Privileged Lottery. True as you're there. Oh, commend me to an Israelite, royal and privileged Hungarian robbery. So Bob Dorden comes lurching around asking Bloom to tell Mrs Dignam he was sorry for her trouble and he was very sorry about the funeral and to tell her that he said and everyone who knew him said that there was never a truer, a finer than poor little Willie that's dead to tell her. Choking with bloody foolery and shaking Bloom's hand, doing the tragic to tell her that. Shake hands, brother, you're a rogue and I'm another. Let me, said he, so far presume upon our acquaintance, which, however slight it may appear, if judged by the standard of mere time, is founded, as I hope and believe, on a sentiment of mutual esteem. 
as to request of you this favour. But should I have overstepped limits of reserve, let the sincerity of my feelings be the excuse for my boldness. No, rejoined the other. I appreciate to the full the motives which actuate your conduct, and I shall discharge the office you entrust to me, consoled by the reflection that, though the errand be one of sorrow, this proof of your confidence sweetens in some measure the bitterness of the cup. Then suffer me to take your hand, said he. The goodness of your heart, I feel sure, will dictate to you better than my inadequate words the expressions which are most suitable to convey an emotion whose poignancy, were I to give vent to my feelings, would deprive me even of speech. And off with him and out, trying to walk straight. Fused at five o'clock. Night he was near being lagged, only Paddy Leonard knew the bobby, fourteen hour. Blind to the world up in a she-been in Bride Street after closing to him, fornicating with two shawls, and a bully on guard, drinking porter at a teacups, and calling himself a Frenchie for the shawls, Joseph Manuel, and talking against the Catholic religion, and he's having mass in Adam and Eve's when he was young, with his eyes shut, who wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament, and hugging and smugging, and the two shawls killed with the laughing, picking his pockets, the bloody fool, and he swelling the porter all over the bed, and the two shawls screeching, laughing at one another. How is your testament? Have you got an old testament? Only Paddy was passing there, I tell you what. And then see him of a Sunday with his little concubine of a wife, and she wagging her tail up the aisle of the chapel with her patent boots on her, no less, and her violets, nice as pie, doing the little lady, Jack Mooney's sister, and the old prostitute of her mother procuring rooms to street couples. God, Jack made him tow the line. Told him if he didn't patch up the pot, Jesus, he'd kick the shite out of him. So Terry brought the three points. Here. Says Joe, doing the honours. Here, citizen. Slow lad. Says he. Fortune, Joe, says I. Good health, citizen. Gob, he had his mouth halfway down the tumbler already. Want a small fortune to keep him in drinks. Who is the long fellow running for the mayoralty, Alf? Says Joe. Friend of yours. Says Alf. Nanum. Says Joe. The member. We won't mention any names. Says Alf. I thought so. Says Joe. I saw him up at that meeting now with William Field, MP, the cattle traders. Here he I opus. Says the citizen. That exploded volcano. The darling of all countries and the idol of his own. So Joe starts telling the citizen about the foot and mouth disease and the cattle traders and taking action in the matter and the citizens sending them all to the right about and Bloom coming out with his sheep dip for the scab and a hoose drench for coughing calves and the guaranteed remedy for timber tongue because he was up one time in a knacker's yard walking about with his book and pencil Here's me head and me heels are coming, till Joe Cuff gave him the order of the boot for giving lip to a grazier. Mr. Nowall, teach your grandmother how to milk ducks. Pissabork was telling me in the hotel the wife used to be in rivers of tears sometimes, with Mrs. O'Dowd crying her eyes out with her eight inches of fat all over her. Couldn't loosen her farting strings, but old Kazai was waltzing around her, showing her how to do it. What's your programme today? Aye, humane methods, because the poor animals suffer, and experts say, and the best-known remedy that doesn't cause pain to the animal, and on the sore spot administered gently. Gob, he'd have a soft hand under a hen. Cluck, cluck, cluck. Black Liz is our hen. She lays eggs for us. When she lays her egg, she is so glad. Gara! Look, look, look! Then comes good Uncle Leo. He puts his hand under Black Liz and takes her fresh egg. Gara! 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 Gara!
anyhow, says Joe. Field and Annette are going over tonight to London to ask about it on the floor of the House of Commons. Are you sure, says Bloom, the councillor is going? I wanted to see him as it happens. Well, he's going off by the mailboat, says Joe. Tonight? That's too bad, says Bloom. I want it particularly. Perhaps only Mr Field is going. I couldn't phone, no. You're sure? Nanan's going too, says Joe. The League told him to ask a question tomorrow about the Commissioner of Police forbidden Irish games in the park. <laughs> what do you think of that, citizen? The slewin' of heron. There's the man, says Joe, that made the Gaelic sports revival. There he is sitting there, the man that got away, James Stevens, the champion of all Ireland at putting the 16-pound shot. What was your best throw, citizen? No backlash, says the citizen, letting on to be modest. There was a time I was as good as the next fellow anyhow. Put it there, citizen, says Joe. You were and a bloody sight better. Is that really a fact? Says Alf. Yes, says Bloom. Uh, that's well known. Do you not know that? So off they started about Irish sport and shown in games the like of the lawn tennis and about Hurley and putting the stone and racy of the soil and building up a nation once again and all of that. And, of course, Bloom had to have his say, too, about if a fella had a rower's heart, violence exercise was bad. Well, declare to me, Auntie Macassar, if you took up a straw from the bloody floor and if you said to Bloom, look at Bloom, do you see that straw? That's a straw. Declare to me, Auntie, he'd talk about it for an hour, so he would, and talk steady. Talking about violent exercise, says Alf. Were you at that Kyle Bennett match? No, says Joe. I heard so-and-so made a cool hundred quid over it, says Alf. Who? Blazes, says Joe, and says Bloom. What I meant about tennis, for example, is the agility and training of the eye. Oh, Blazes, says Alf. He let out that Moiler was on the beer to run the odds, and he's swatting all the time. We know him, says the citizen. The traitor's son. We know what put English gold in his pocket. Through for you, says Joe. And Bloom cuts in again about lawn tennis and the circulation of the blood, asking Alf... Now, don't you think, Bergen? Moiler dusted the floor with him, says Alf. Heenan and Sears is only a bloody fool to it. And it am the father and mother of a beating. See the little kipper, not up to his navel, and the big fella swiping. God, he gave him one last puck in the wind. Queensbury rules and all, made him puke what he never ate. He knows which side his bread is buttered, says Alf. I hear he's running a concert tour now, up in the north. He is, says Joe. Isn't he? Who? says Bloom. Ah, yes, that's quite true. Yes, a kind of summer tour, you see. Just a holiday. Mrs. B is the bright particular star, isn't she? says Joe. Uh, My wife? says Bloom. Uh, She's singing, yes. I think it will be a success, too. He's an excellent man to organise. Excellent. Ho, ho, big gob, says I to myself, says I. That explains the milk and the coconut and absence of hair on the animal's chest. Blazes doing the tootle on the flute. Concert tour. Dirty down the Dodger son of Island Bridge that sold the same horses twice over to the government to fight the Boers. Old what what? I called about the poor and water rate, Mr Boylan. You what? The water rate, Mr Boylan. You what what? That's the book of that organiser. Take my tip. Twixt me and you, Catherine. Pride of Calpe's rocky mount, the raven-haired daughter of Tweedy, there grew she to peerless beauty, where Lockwet and Armand sent the air. The gardens of Alameda knew her step, the garths of olives knew and bowed. The chaste spars of Leopold is she, Marion of the bountiful bosoms. And lo, there entered one of the clan of the Omeloys, a comely hero of white face, yet withal somewhat ruddy. His Majesty's Council, learned in the law, and with him the prince and heir of the noble line of Lambert. Hello, Ned. Hello, Elf. Hello, Jack. Hello, Joe. God save you, says the citizen. Save you kindly, says JJ. What'll it be, Ned? Half one, says Ned. So JJ ordered the drinks. Were you round at the court, says Joe. Yes, says JJ. He'll square that, Ned, says he. Hope so, says Ned. Now, what were those two at? J.J. getting him off the grand jury list and the other give him a leg over the stile with his name in stubs, playing cards, hobnobbing with flash tufts with a swank glass in their eye, drinking fizz and he half smothered in writs and garnishy orders. Pawning his gold watch in Cummins of Francis Street where no one would know him, 
in the private office when I was there with piss of releasing his boots out of the pop. What's your name, sir? Dunn, says he. Ah, and Dunn, says I. God, he'll come home by weeping cross one of these days, I'm thinking. Did you see that bloody lunatic brain round there? Says Alf. You pay up. Yes. Says JJ. Looking for a private detective. Aye. Says Ned. And he wanted right go wrong to address the court. Only Corny Kelleher got round him, telling him to get the handwriting examined first. Ten thousand pounds. <laughs> says Alf, laughing. God, I'd give anything to hear him before a judge and jury. Was it you did it, Alf? Says Joe. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, Jimmy Johnson. Me? Says Alf. Don't cast your distortions on my character. Whatever statement you make, says Joe, will be taken down in evidence against you. Of course an action would lie, says JJ. It implies that he is not compass mentis. You pee up. Compass your eye, <laughs> says Alf, laughing. Do you know that he's balmy? Look at his head. Do you know that some mornings he has to get his hat on with a shoehorn? Yes, <laughs> says JJ. But the truth of a libel is no defence to an indictment for publishing it in the eyes of the law. Ha ha, Alf, says Joe. Still, says Bloom, on account of the poor woman, I mean his wife, pity about her, says the citizen. Or any other woman marries a half and half. How half and half, says Bloom. Do you mean he... Half and half, I mean, says the citizen. A fella that's neither fish nor flesh. No good red heading, says Joe. That's what I mean, says the citizen. A pishog, if you know what that is. Big God, I saw there was trouble coming. And Bloom explained he meant on account of it being cruel for the wife having to go round after the old stuttering fool. Cruelty to animals, so it is, to let that bloody poverty-stricken Breen out on grass with his beard out, tripping him, bringing down the rain. And she with her nose cock-a-hoop after she married him, because the cousin of his old fellows was pew-opener to the Pope. Picture of him on the wall with his smash-old Sweeney's moustaches. The senior Breeny from Summerhill, the Italiano, papal wave to the Holy Father, has left the quay and gone to Moss Street. And who was he, tell us? A nobody. Two pair back and passages at seven shillings a week, and he covered with all kinds of breastplates, bidding defiance to the world. And moreover, says JJ, a postcard is publication. It was held to be sufficient evidence of malice in the test case Sadgrove v. Hole. In my opinion, an action might lie. Six and eightpence, please. Who wants your opinion? Let us think our points in peace. God, we won't be let even do it that much itself. Well, good health, Jack, says Ned. Good health, Ned, says JJ. There he is again, says Joe. Where? says Alf. And be gob, there he was, passing the door with his books under his oxter, and the wife beside him, and Corny Callar with his wall eye looking in as they went past, talking to him like a father trying to sell him a second-hand coffin. How did that Canada swindle case go off? says Joe. Remanded, says JJ. One of the bottle-nosed fraternities was... Went by the name of James Walt, alias Sapiro, alias Spark and Spiro. Put an ad in the paper saying he'd give a passage to Canada for twenty bob. What? Do you see any green in the white of my eye? Course it was a bloody Barney. What? Swindled them all, skiwies and buttocks from the county maid. Aye, and his own kidney too. J.J. was telling us there was an ancient Hebrew, Zaretsky or something, weeping in the witness box with his hat on him, swearing by the holy Moses he was stuck for two quid. Who tried the case? Says Joe. Recorder. Says Ned. Poor old Sir Frederick. Says Alf. You can cut him up to the two eyes. Heart as big as a lion. Says Ned. Tell him a tale of woe about arrears of rent and a sick wife and a squad of kids and faith he'll dissolve in tears on the bench. Aye. Says Alf. Reuben J. was bloody lucky he didn't clap him in the dock the other day. Pursuing poor little Gumley that's mining stones for the corporation there near Buttbridge. And he starts taking off the old recorder, letting on to cry. A most scandalous thing. This poor, hard-working man. How many children? Ten, did you say? Yes, your worship. And my wife has the typhoid. And a wife with typhoid fever. Scandalous. Leave the court immediately, sir. No, sir. I'll make no order for payment. How dare you, sir, come up before me and ask me to make an order? A poor, hard-working, industrious man. I dismiss the case. Those are nice things, says the citizen. Coming over here to Ireland, filling the country with bugs. So Bloom lets Annie hear nothing, and he starts talking with Joe, telling him he needn't trouble about that little matter till the first. 
but if he would just say a word to Mr. Crawford. And so Joe swore high and holy by this and by that he'd do the devil and all. Because, you see, says Bloom, for an advertisement you must have repetition. That's the whole secret. Rely on me, says Joe. Swindling the peasant, says the citizen. And the poor of Ireland. We want no more strangers in our house. Oh, I'm sure that will be all right, Hines. Says Bloom. It's just that the keys, you see. Consider that done, says Joe. Very kind of you, says Bloom. The strangers, says the citizen. Our own fault. We let them come in. We brought them. The adulteress and her paramour brought the Saxon robbers here. Decree Nisi, says J.J. And Bloom let Nant be awfully deeply interested in nothing. A spider's web in the corner behind the barrel, and the citizen scowling after him, and the old dog at his feet looking up to know who to bite and when. You've been listening to an excerpt from Cyclops, episode 12 of James Joyce's Ulysses, the 1982 recording by the RTE Players, directed by William Stiles and recorded by Marcus MacDonald. Brendan Caldwell was the narrator and Peter Dix played the citizen. For full production credits, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Michael West returns in two weeks' time to discuss episode 17, Ithaca. Next week's Drama on One, also with the Joycean connection, is Bloomsday by Nick Midgley. And all of this anticipates what's fast becoming an annual tradition, the upcoming broadcast this Bloomsday of Ulysses in its entirety on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And to keep it a true marathon this year, Ulysses will be followed by the RTE Players adaptation of Dubliners and Joyce's play Exiles. But of course, all this material is available to listen to anytime you like at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. This Bloomsday. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again. Shut your eyes and see the world of James Joyce. And then he asked me, would I? Yes, to say yes, my mountain flower. The complete Ulysses, Exiles and Dubliners. And first I put my arms around him, yes. Streaming and online. And drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes. June 16th from 8am. And his heart was going like mad. Bloomsday 100. Yes, I said yes. On RTE Radio 1 Extra. I will. Yes. Bloomsday 100 on RTE. You will. Yes. 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 RTE.ie forward slash drama on one.